We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with the season finale of Benall of America Audio Season 1. That's right, folks. After nine months, 22 guests, and 32 episodes, Benall of America Audio Season 1 has reached its climax. We are finishing up here with a massive guest, a super A-list name, an ultra-rare interview with the notorious UK UFO hacker Gary McKinnon, This man's facing some serious jail time. He's done some amazingly daring things. He's been thrust into the center of a worldwide story. And we're going to get his perspective on all that here this week on Banal of America Audio for the Season 1 season finale. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Gary McKinnon and his story, let me bring you up to speed before we kick off the interview. He is a former computer systems administrator who was accused of hacking into 97 United States military and NASA computers in 2001 and 2002. The computer networks he is accused of hacking into include networks owned by NASA, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Navy, Department of Defense, and the U.S. Air Force, and also one belonging to the Pentagon. The U.S. estimates claim the costs of tracking and correcting the problems he allegedly caused were around $700,000 U.S. McKinnon was originally tracked down and arrested under the Computer Misuse Act by the UK National High Tech Crime Unit in 2002, and later that year was also indicted by the United States government. He remained at liberty, although subject to bail conditions, including a requirement to sign in at his local police station every evening and to remain at his home address at night. In addition, he was banned from using a computer with access to the Internet. If he is extradited to the United States and charged, McKinnon faces up to 70 years in jail and has expressed fears that he could be sent to Guantanamo Bay. He has said that he will contest the extradition proceedings and believes that he should face trial in the UK, principally as he argues that his crimes were committed there and not in the United States. You can find out more information on the latest developments in Gary's case at www.freegary.org.uk. So, that's the Gary McKinnon story. Now, let's hear it from the man himself. This interview was conducted on June 21, 2006. Ladies and gentlemen, Gary McKinnon on the Banal of America Audio Season 1, Season Finale. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Season Finale of Banal of America Audio. I want to welcome my special guest for this Season Finale. He made worldwide news 
uh, his story has become a major story in ufology, and it, it's been talked about all over the place. And he's facing numerous counts of computer hacking in search of UFO secrets. All the way from the UK, Gary McKinnon, welcome to Banal of America Audio. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. Um, Gary, uh, why don't you talk about first your interest in ufology and how it brought you to hacking, and then eventually how that hacking led to your arrest and now the situation you're in right now. How's that sound? Okay, yeah. I've um, heard uh, quite a bit about UFOs. I was about 14. And, um, well, in fact, earlier than that, maybe around 11 or 12. And uh, at the age of 14, I joined something called Bufour, and that's the British UFO Research Association. And um, I had quite a strong interest back then, uh, which was lost slightly as I grew older. So um, I, found, I found recently, actually, there's a huge, you know, a huge years and years' worth of uh, UFO literature that I'd never seen or heard of. Yeah. Photographs, video footage, books, etc. And, um... Yeah, after a while, you, you get sick of, uh, I mean, there's, there's enough literature out there, even having not read all of it, to know that um, there definitely is a cover-up going on. Mm -hmm. And um, I think uh, my sort of overpowering motive was to um, find something from the so-called secret government themselves that was uh, an evidential file, basically evidential paperwork or copies thereof. And uh, then rather than um, throw witness testimony at them or the kind of evidence they don't accept and keep calling weather balloons and smog gas and stuff, yeah. say, well, look, you know, here's some of your own official uh, photography or documentation or whatever, so, you know, you can't say against that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, that, that, that led you to the hacking, obviously, uh, and you thought that was the best-case scenario or the best way to go about uh, getting the information, or was it just that you had a skill in hacking, sort of, and then you were like, you were going to put it to use towards finding UFO secrets? It was, yeah, it was a bit of both, really. I mean, if I hadn't known a little bit about computer security already, it, wouldn't, it probably wouldn't have been an avenue that I'd take. Yeah. Um, and, then, uh, and then the feds the, the feds arrested you. How did that play out, and what specifically are the charges, and, uh, like, what's the worst-case scenario? And obviously, uh, I read an interview with you, and, and they offered a plea deal, but they wouldn't put it in writing, so talk a little bit about that. Let's, let's mm -hmm. talk about the... Uh, how this all went down where you were arrested. Okay, there was a National High Tech Crime Unit over here, and um, men are part of uh, something called SOCA, the Serious Organized Crime Association, which is uh, a new thing in this country. It's basically like a British version of FBI now. Yeah. And um, when they first arrested me, um, they knew it was unauthorized access. They'd been watching me for three months. Uh, they said probably the worst case scenario would be out of six months in jail or some community service. And um, then they went over to Washington, where they visited the uh, Office of Naval Investigation, and I think also the Air Force Office of Special Investigation. Okay. And uh, when they came back from those meetings, they, uh, their, their tone had really, really changed. They were much more serious. Yeah. And uh, I found out since that um, I knew about AFOSI at the time, being uh, Air Force Office of Special Investigations, in uh, UFO related. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know about the Office of Naval Intelligence, the ONI, but I've since found out that they too are the same, uh, you know, the same uh, overlap of interest. And um, I think people that are sort of familiar with law enforcement in America are very surprised that the FBI weren't involved in a case like this. It was all sort of military uh, law enforcement agencies, if you will. Yeah, so it was like uh, the guy from the guy from the UK went over to the US, and then he was uh, probably gave a briefing or brief or met with uh, the ONI, uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence, and the uh, 
in the Air Force Office of Special Investigation, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay, so, and it wasn't like no CIA involvement or FBI, like you said, right? That's correct, yeah. So what's going on right now is obviously you've, I guess you, you admit that you hacked. What what do you, what's your goal here? Are you trying to uh, to just not come to America to uh, to face this and would rather do the time in, in the U.K.? Or do you want the charges dropped? Like, what what is your side looking for here? Um, I'd like to, I mean, I'd, I'd love for it to be dropped. It's been a sentence in itself. It's past nearly five years now. But um, I'd definitely like the right just to be tried in my own country. I mean, we've got guys that are um, accused terrorists from uh, Baghdad and Iraq, uh, some of which have won their right to be tried over here in the UK just because they're under the, the auspices of uh, British troops in Iraq. Now, some Iraqi accused terrorists can have the right to get um, a trial in Britain, then uh, surely I should, you know. And also over here, it's, um, it's sort of, might be six months in jail. Yeah. Um, the unauthorized access charges, because the damage charges are ridiculous. I found out that um, for it to be an extraditable offence, it has to be worth uh, one year in prison. And uh, for it to be a one-year prison term for a computer offence, you have to have caused at least $5,000 worth of damage. Yeah. And uh, every machine I was on, they said I've caused exactly $5,000 worth of damage on. So, <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. And uh, I, I said to some, you know, why on earth are they so uh, vehement? And uh, why is it the first extradition case in the history of hacking as well? And this was an investigative journalist, Peter Warren, that went over there and um, in interviewed some top brass. And they said, well, it's because of where he's been and what he might have seen. And um, I've also since found out, having met a lot of people in the UFO community since, but um, a lot of the places I was in at the time, I didn't realize um, how sensitive they were, like China Lake, Fort, uh, is it Huashuka or Huashuka or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, which now, you know, apparently, you know, strong UFO links and uh, bank engineering and um, ET technology. And uh, over the course of the arrest and the subsequent prosecution, uh, at what point did you tell them that you were uh, doing all this for UFO secrets? And what was their reaction to to uh, what you said, that, that you were going after UFO secrets? Well, all, all the way down the line, uh, I maintained that. I mean, um, yeah. if, if we were able to see my hard drive, which I think is still with the ONI, which is actually a legal possession of um, case-related material, um, it's full of UFO stuff and other stuff as well, as you know, as well as all the, the trails of the unauthorized access. And I've, I've made full and frank admissions all the way down the line to the unauthorized access. And they were monitoring me for three months, so that the damage thing is, is the real... The accusations of damage is what's damaging me, you know, it's, um, it's patently ridiculous and uh, I'd like the right to be tried in my own country um, so that um, evidence has to be supplied because I know there is no evidence of damage. Yeah, but like when you when you said to uh, to the people who were trying to prosecute you, you when you were like, Look at now, listen, I'm just going for UFO secrets, I'm not interested in hurting you guys or whatever, what, did they laugh you off or were they, did they not believe you <laughs> or like what was their reaction to that? Yeah, um, the National High Tech Crime Unit, um, uh, who are quite a friendly bunch of guys in the end, um, was kind of joking about little green men, etc. Yeah. But uh, they did have, uh, as I said, the first interview before they went to Washington was very different from the second. And um, in the second interview, they actually asked me if I was a member of any terrorist organizations, Al-Qaeda, oh, like which is just, you know, I laughed when I was asked that. Yeah. And, and, and you thank God I wasn't. I know. And did, uh, do you have any idea what exactly uh, went down, other than the briefing that uh, between the between the British officials and the uh, the ONI and the AFOSI? 
Like, do you have any idea what that what was going on in that meeting and what the details of that were that made them change their their stance so fast? Well, no, but I think um, given the sequence of events, the initial arrest by the National High Tech Crime Unit was March 2002. Yeah. And then the long police interview with me, not the uh, first police cell interview, the second one, um, was probably around May or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then the visit to Washington was, I think, June or July. Yeah. And then the second interview, maybe um, shortly after that, maybe July or August. And then November, then the um, Bush administration say they intend to present an application to extradite me. Okay. Um, um, what do you, what's your family think about what's happened to you um, throughout this whole thing? Obviously, they're they're on your side, I assume. But uh, what are they? Are they worried about it? Are you worried about going to jail? And uh, what, yeah. what, what do you guys? What do you think of all this? Yeah, they're very worried about it. Um, you know, definitely, it's very upsetting to to think of. Uh, and yeah, I'm very worried. And you know, such a long sentence. It's just uh, ridiculous. I'm very worried about being sort of spirited away and coming under this uh, military order number one thing, which is uh, quite a serious threat. Yeah. Uh, it's basically been the military tribunal, you know. Yeah. Is that what is that the uh, is that what will happen to you if you are extradited to the U.S. That you'll be you won't get a straight up U.S. trial. That that it'll be like a military trial. I'm advised there's a strong likelihood of that. Yeah. Okay. And and and. Uh, and then you'd end up if if they found you guilty and everything, which if it's a military tribunal, it sounds like it's pretty one-sided in and of itself. Would you be able to bring your UK lawyer with you? Or would you get a whole new uh, US lawyer? Um, I think it'd be a new uh, American lawyer. Yeah. Now, uh, one of the it's kind of ironic because there's a very famous uh, UFO hacker case that comes out of the UK, the Matthew Bevan case. Um, I'm, I, That's I, right, yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with it then, yeah. Um, and in that instance, the government dropped the charges because they couldn't supply the right evidence. Um, why is your case different? And, um, you know, try to talk a little bit about the Matthew Bevan case, because I'm sure you're pretty familiar with it, because you're kind of in the same shoes he was. Why is your case different from the Matthew Bevan case, where they couldn't keep going with the, uh, with the charges? Hmm. Well, um, as you say, yeah, it's very similar in that um, we're both hunting for suppressed technology, UFO and gravity stuff. Yeah. And, um, but the difference is he was being done under the old extradition uh, agreements wherein you had to supply what they call a prima facie case. You have to have a solid body of evidence. Um, whereas I'm being prosecuted under the 2003 extradition treaty in which um, the requesting country for the extradition, i.e. in this case America, yeah. uh, doesn't have to supply any evidence. And it's actually, uh, the UK government couldn't do that to an American citizen, thank God, because you're protected by the Constitution. Uh, and also this treaty, where you don't have to supply any evidence, uh, hasn't been signed by the Senate yet, hasn't been ratified. So it's currently a one-ended one treaty. Yeah. So it's, um, it's a really blurry area of uh, international law as well. Yeah. Well, one of the things I sort of noticed when I was doing the research for this interview was that... Uh, that hacking, and you can probably speak to this pretty well, hacking is kind of like an addiction in a sense that uh, you really just got to keep doing it. You're not, I, I don't know, do you know what I mean? Is there sort of an addictive quality to hacking? I don't want to sound like a liberal too much, but at the same time, I think there is some merit to that argument that there's that there's a, an addictive quality to the hacking. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, especially with men, I think we're slightly more like that than women. Um, I think um, you can get very obsessional about something. 
and especially I'm, I consider myself in a way to be on a kind of moral crusade looking for this uh, free energy technology. Yeah. So um, I think, um, and, and also you know, there's, 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 there were things going on in my personal life as well, so it was kind of, yeah, mixed in with the addiction and um, thinking that you're morally correct, even though you know you're not meant to gain unauthorized access. Yeah. Um, I mean, many, many, I think most people in America believe that uh, the government know about the UFO problem, they know the, the origins and uh, their motives. And um, if we do have this free energy technology, it's something that the world deserves to have, and surely we can phase it in. We don't have to knock down all the oil companies straight away. It can be slowly phased in. I'm sure we could find a, you know, a genuine, sane economic effort and solution. Yeah. And the free energy, uh, the free energy sort of was coupled with the search for UFO information. You sort of like tie those two together because obviously that's how what's powering the UFOs. You presume, right? Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And what's been the reaction to in the hacking community to your story? I mean, I know you uh, you kind of got you can't really use the internet much at all, or I think I don't even know. I think you're probably not allowed to use it in any way now. But so you probably don't know what the hacking community's saying. But you might have heard, or when it first went down, maybe you did. And what's been their reaction to this to this uh, to this case? I think uh, a lot of them are very angry at um, the fact that it could end up. Changing from six months doing community service into uh, 60 years in prison. Yeah. Um, and especially the, the fact that it's got a lot of British hackers angry just because of the, the legal aspects of it. You know, no evidence required yet. The treaties are a one-end treaty. Um, but yeah, as, as you say, I mean, I've got limited access to the internet. I'm allowed to access the internet if I get the IP address of uh, the employer or the organisation or whatever, and then provide that to the court. But it's only one IP address. Yeah. While you're doing all this hacking to look for the UFO secrets, um, did you sort of like have this end game in mind? Like you had to have known that uh, possibly you were going to get caught, or, or like where did you think this all was going to go? That you were going to get the information and then and then break this case wide open, or or were you always sort of worried that one day they could come and take me for this? Yeah, I mean, I, I did. I was aware of the possibility of getting caught, but I must admit, I wasn't thinking of it very often. Yeah. And uh, I suppose when I did, I mean, in my mind, unauthorized access, thinking that I'd be prosecuted in my own country if it ever came to, um, would only be a few months, so. Yeah, it became bigger than you thought it would turn out to be, I'm sure. Yeah, and I felt that, you know, my kind of mission, as it were, was, was more important. And it was, it was getting a bit interesting and I was finding the odd thing, so. Yeah. And um, how long, how What's the, how long were you hacking, roughly? I think I have here in my notes seven years of hacking. Um, was that pretty much roughly the, uh, the time frame, uh, amount of time that you uh, were looking? That's 2000, 2001. What's that? 2000, 2001, two years. Just one year? Uh, two years. Oh, you're only hacking for two years? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you had started in, like, uh, the mid-90s and, and, and hacked all the way up to 2002. Oh, no, I started my um, computer contracting uh, mid-90s and learning about computer security, yeah. Oh, okay, but you only really began the search around 2001, you say? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, so that explains a lot of uh, um, maybe why you haven't really, you didn't really come up with anything tangible uh, out of the whole thing. That's one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Um, there seems to be a little bit of frustration within the UFO community, which... Uh, which is always the case, really, but with this with this story in general, because uh, you haven't really produced uh, any like 
tangible, like you said, you were searching for the documents and searching for the, the, the thing you could throw in the government space, but you didn't quite get it. Um, speak to that a little bit. Why didn't you get any anything that, that we could use here to throw at the government? Um, because I'm not here to produce evidence for what I saw. I'm here because I got caught. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, you know, I didn't envision this at the end. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I did see, there was, I mean, for, for me, the most, although it's still circumstantial, there was um, the Don Hare, the, pho the NASA photographic expert, um, who said, who I saw in the Disclosure Project um, press conference video, um, that she was working in Building 8 of Johnson Space Center and had secret above clearance. And my um, colleague showed uh, what were basically photographs of flying saucers and um, basically implying that his job was to airbrush them out. Yeah. And um, having already done this blank password scanning method, must bear that in mind as well. It's, um, it wasn't, you know, I'm not some huge mastermind hacker, it's more because the security was very, very lax rather than I was very, very clever. Yeah. Um, if you, uh, yeah, he said, she said something like, oh, isn't that just a blob in the emulsion? You know, and he was like, well, no, if you look very closely, there's actually a shadow beneath the flowing source, and apparently showed quite a few images of these. And bearing in mind, this is on the Disclosure Project video, there was, you know, 400 witness testimonies of the nearly two hours worth of footage for about 20 or so of those witnesses. They're all incredibly incredible. I mean, you know, it's like um, radar operators, civilian air traffic controllers, yeah. um, people responsible for launching nuclear missiles. So to me, this story from this woman and, and the company she was in um, had to be something to go for. So um, using the same blank password scanning method, they got into Johnson Space Center, uh, used some network commands to strip out the machines that were possibly in Building 8, and um, got the blank password subset of those machines. And, um, yeah, lo and behold, there were the um, folders, something like raw and processed or filtered and unfiltered. Yeah. And uh, why didn't you print out any of these pictures or save them to a disk or put them away as, like, a safekeeping so you could be okay in the long run? Yeah, I'm on a 56K dial-up at the time. So yeah. you're talking maybe four and a half or five minutes for one megabyte. And uh, these pictures were, like, uh, 200, 230, 300 megabytes in size. Oh, man. And, um, so it would have taken a while, and even if I used, like, a download resumer, you know, you know what might have happened and how long could I possibly maintain that connection for if this is a secret lab for airbrushing out UFO images, you know. Yeah. So um, I wanted to grab it straight away, and I think um, the time zone was wrong as well. I think people were still working in the office. Yeah. So um, a quick desktop, uh, you have to imagine if you picture yourself there, there was a, pro a product called Remotely Anywhere, and it gives you graphical remote control of the desktop just as if you're sitting on the, on the chair by the monitor. Mm -hmm. And um, you can turn that down to very low resolution, I think maybe 640 by 480, uh, maybe down to monochrome or 4-bit color. And um, then I navigate to the folder on the desktop and uh, double-click one of these images at random. And it's in some kind of sort of NASA proprietary format, not JPEG or GIF or anything. Yeah. And then um, it has got an application associated with it. It launches, it opens the window, and the picture starts coming down the screen. It is still very, very slow. But with all those methods in place, that's uh, technically faster than actually downloading it. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and also you get to see it while it's happening rather than having a file coming down and seeing nothing of it as the transfer is live. Yeah, exactly. And how many of these pictures would you say you saw? Um, when I was, in a, I was in a console in the initial connection, and um, I did a, a DIR command, you know, to get a directory listing. Yeah. And it was going on and on and on for like 10, 15, 20 seconds. And I can't remember how many were in the folder when I quit the desktop, but um, hundreds. And that was just one folder, you know, there were lots of different folders. Yeah. 
And did you get any names of uh, these uh, these num uh, these these pictures or anything? Were they numbered? Were they were they titled? How were they uh, categorized? Um, I can't remember any numbering or anything on the pictures. Yeah, so was it anything out of the ordinary, like they were named after Greek gods, or, or they were like numerically uh, listed, or they had maybe like a picture reference number where you were like, I recognize that picture. Did you recognize any pictures that you saw maybe as anything famous like that or anything like that? No, I only got a chance to download not even the whole of this first picture that I ran that I double clicked on. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, so you only really saw the one the one picture that you were sort of half downloading and then uh yeah and probably only about three quarters of that and that's when um, this guy well i assume there's a guy and you know the mouse moves across the screen and right clicks your land icon and it's easy to disconnect and that was in the out of uh, johnson yeah and out of Gaza, in fact so is the situation like we're there in there at johnson space center uh, on some random computer is like what you see on your computer yeah only, only it's not a random computer it's just, someone's uh, computer <laughs> Well, yeah, there's a specific subset in, in Building 8 pointed to you by someone else who said they weren't there, so it was, to me it was corroboration. Yeah. Um, and then at, throughout while you were doing this, uh, do you know if there are other Gary McKinnons and Matthew Bevins out there? Uh, are there other UFO computer hackers? Like, is there any sort of uh, situation where you knew of other people or people tipped you off to where to go or... Like, I don't want you to tell me anybody, obviously, because I'm going to get wrapped up in this. <laughs> but well, considering is it like a, is it, is it a community at all, or is it sort of where you on your own here? I did see documents on the net that implied there was some, some kind of community, and they had particular uh, locations listed. Okay. Yeah. Um, but while I was on there, as you probably read, there were loads of other connections all the time. Yeah. And um, I can only assume, you know, because of the blank password scanning and also it's administrator-level passwords, I'm not surprised there's lots of people on there. But perhaps because it's such an obvious um, entry method, um, maybe maybe lots of them are just um, being nosy or looking for UFO information. Or, I mean, otherwise, you know, if it was some kind of terrorist organization or a foreign government, they'd be, uh, I don't know, doing a lot more than sniffing around. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But there wasn't a situation where, like, you had people who were emailing you, like, uh, hey, Gary, check this out. I found this at this place. Oh, no. Nothing no. like that. All right. Um, let me talk to you a little bit uh, about the uh, the non-terrestrial officers aspect of your story. I wanted to ask you first, before we get into that, have mm -hmm. uh, can you come up with any keywords or terms or ship names uh they came up that you think we were your future investigation or just for the record sort of thing because uh, I don't know if you've heard about it here in America but we have some kind of story going out that's about Project Serpo and it's a sort of situation where if we had an interview with somebody from like 10 years earlier and they were like there's a thing called Project Serpo and then and then you know it came up later we could be like oh wait a minute there is something so is there anything that stuck out in your mind that you say you saw a list of ship names Anything yeah. specifically yeah. about the names, anything about uh, what the names were, if you can remember, or any sort of keyword or term that might be helpful for future reference, like Freedom of Information Act or future research? No, no, not at all. Also on that same night, as well as the, um, the ship names of the personnel list and non-terrestrial office things, the um, frequency transfers, the material transfers, uh, all sorts of strange and wonderful um, materials were getting transferred. Um, I don't remember a thing about the names. You don't remember anything? Nope. Um, okay, uh, 
Well, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you saw with regards to the non-terrestrial officers, list of ship names, uh, just what you saw, what you can remember about that, and was what what part of uh, the, the U.S. government were you looking into at this point? Was it the Navy? I think it was the Navy, and um, I'm sure there were names and there were definitely ranks, but there was no designation to say you know that it was Navy personnel or Army personnel or Air Force personnel. Yeah. So there's no sort of emplacement within the military, just a rank and a name. And it said list of, where did it say list of non-terrestrial officers is at the top of this list? It was, yeah, an, an Excel spreadsheet, and it's like, a, you know, all the columns uh, stretched to make a, a heading bar. Okay, and how did you, do you remember how you even came upon the list in the first place? Like what, like what's the direct, like what's the path that led you to that? Uh, I can imagine normally when I had um, uh, control over enough machines, I would run a, run a program called LandSearch, and um, that would search for all documents of certain types over, over the network and um, give you a list on screen, and you'd uh, just double-click on interesting ones and read them. Okay. And uh, now I think I heard in an interview that you did that you, you did do some searches sort of for words like UFO and ET and uh, that sort of thing. What, uh, is that correct? Yeah, but I mean, obviously that, um, that, those particular keywords never worked. Yeah. Okay, and, and like you said, you, you hacked into NASA. What, how extensive was the hacking into NASA just to look for those pictures, or were you looking at other stuff too, and, and how long would you say you were in, in focused on NASA? Oh, um, I mean, the pictures I didn't even expect to find. Um, you know, I thought, oh, you know, I've read about this in the, in the other book and stuff. You know, maybe she is telling the truth. Maybe lots of them are credible, but you might get the one. You know, you get disinformation lists in these groups as well. Yeah. And I was thinking for her to be so specific, maybe she is a disinformation list. So, I mean, that was, that was a huge surprise. Um, and also getting caught. After finding them, you know, I just couldn't uh, gain re-entry then. But, I mean, up to that point, maybe um, good two or three months. Okay, okay. And, and like you said, once you got you got nailed that first time, you found the pictures and you couldn't get back after that, huh? Yeah, yeah, and that was very um, quick at uh, realizing the weakness and then blocking the hole. Okay. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit, uh, you sort of touched on it earlier, DARPA. You uh, you went after that and you were looking into DARPA. What uh, you, know, I, you mentioned some kind of really spooky-sounding training video that, that spooked me out when I read about it. But why don't you talk a little bit about what what you were doing in DARPA and what you were looking for and what you found? Uh, well, I heard there was a secret robotics um, project going on there and um, found that there was. It's the same blank password scanning mechanism. Bear in mind, these are private networks and uh, they're not you know, um, publicly advertised, they're not websites. Um, so it's, it's maybe not surprising that security is lax on, on some of them. Um, and uh, yeah, there's, I found uh, software for autonomous robot control. Uh, you know, the tiny little um, bomb diffusing robots uh, yeah. around. Um, and I actually later read, I think it was a 2002 DARPA strategic plan, and most of this, although I didn't know at the time, was actually public knowledge, you know, making machines to go into urban combat, basically. Yeah. And um, so that, that was, you know, just kind of fun, like, God, I'm not making But I think the ultimate plan is actually to have uh, almost, you know, Star Wars Walker-like machines, so you don't actually have to send people into war, which is kind of frightening. Exactly. That is that is spooky. Um, and and uh, like I said, can you talk a little bit about the training video that you saw that had uh, words flashing up on the screen and uh, might have been for like a yeah. special forces training video. Can you talk about that some? 
Yeah, I think it must have been um, special forces. There was uh, sort of uh, like a, a model village, I guess, made of like a dusty brick. And um, yeah, brutality, domination, you know, breaking and entering, um, bashing into houses, you know, bashing down doors, doing a sort of double entry, corner sweep, blah, blah, blah. <coughs> but I suppose, you know, brutality and domination are you know, kind of how you want to get guys feeling when they're, when they're risking their lives. Yeah, yeah. And did it say what, uh, what branch of uh, the, the special forces it, it was the video for, or was it just like, uh, no. you don't recall that at all? No. Okay, and then uh, also in the article, this is like the third thing I wanted to ask you about that you looked into. Um, it said that you that, that you started this after. Now, now that I'm remembering this and looking at the notes, I do kind of remember that, that I was confused about when you had started hacking. But it said you started uh, looking into 9/11, or you started right after 9/11. You sort of did look into 9/11 a little bit. Um, how extensive was your was your hacking as far as looking for information on 9/11, and how? Uh, what kind of information did you find? Uh, I'm not going to talk about that. Oh, really? Hmm. Okay. Um, any reason you want to give why you won't talk about it at all? Um, uh, I'm not going to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And uh, did you look into, uh, did you try at all to look into the CIA at all? I know you went into NASA, like we said, went into NASA and DARPA, and you tried to look into 9-11. Uh, what, what other organizations were you looking into uh, when, when you're doing your hacking, uh, government ones? And especially, notably, would, were you looking into the CIA at all or anybody else like that? Um, not the CIA or the FBI, no, no. And the, what, about, what about, like, the NSA or HARP or anything like that? Um, apparently, I didn't realize at the time that um, Fort Meade is, uh, is where the NSA live, and um, I think I was on a few machines there. But I'm sure it's not all NSA there, and I'm sure if there were NSA machines there, they wouldn't have had um, blank administrative passwords. Yeah. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about how the government wanted to cut a deal with you, and... Uh, and how that sort of fell apart, because it sounded like they were offering you a deal, but then they wouldn't put it down on paper. Um, tell me, like, what, what you can tell me about uh, them cutting a deal. Yeah, precisely. They said, um, if you don't force us to extradite you, to go through the extradition process, if you come across of your own free will, uh, then you'll only do three or four years in jail. Um, but uh, with no right of public appeal and no right of comment. And um, I said, well, you know, give me that in writing. And uh, they wouldn't give any guarantees or anything in writing. And, you know, it's just not a deal, is it? To make an offer and then not, not put it in writing. Um, okay. Uh, and, and a lot of people say, uh, sort of facetiously, I guess, they say, uh, well, they shouldn't be prosecuting him. They should be giving him a job. Um, have you, was there any talk of you getting a job out of this, or did you offer to, to work for them, and uh, did, did any sort of aspect of you end up, you know, becoming a part of the organization come up? No, 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 it hasn't come up. And they, yeah, and, and you, and you didn't, did you even sort of like throw that out there, where you were like, hey, listen, I'll play along, I'll show you how I did this, and then maybe you guys can go away? Well, I think um, I think uh, a different lawyer from before did actually say something, or he intimated to me that he said something, but not, not without me having asked him. And um, he said the reply was something like, we can't be seen to work with him, or we can't be seen to have someone like him work for us. 
Okay. I guess uh, then there's sort of like this devil's advocate question, which is like uh, if, if somebody who was up to something nefarious was caught, the UFO uh, reason is a perfect, is like a great alibi. And uh, I guess, you know, the, the, uh, the actually, ironically, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations were always seemed to be a part of investigating potential communists back in the day who they thought were working under the cover of ufology. Um, so really? how, what's that? I've never heard of that, Koji. Oh, yeah, you should uh, check out, um, where's the book here? Yeah, you should check out uh, Nick Redfern's book, uh, On the Trail of the Saucer Spies. You're actually mentioned in it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should check it out. Um, but it's a, you, you look good, don't worry. <laughs> um, but, like, to ask, to ask that devil's advocate question, um, like, you can back it up that you were looking for, that you, that you were interested in UFOs before this all started. This wasn't like, uh, like, how do you, how do you answer the critics who are like, who don't believe you, who don't, who don't think that, who think um, that you're create that, that nobody would really do that. And you obviously, you must be an America, an America hater or something. I don't know, you know, what, what, what do you say to those people who don't believe your story? Well, I suppose the only way to back it up would be if before I still had files back to when I was uh, 14 years old, so 26 years ago. Yeah. Oh. The fact that all my mates can tell you that for years I've been mean, nothing about typical <laughs> sci-fi, not really, you know. So, do you find a lot of people uh, are disbelieving of the story, or is it sort of like they're sort of just as mystified as you are that this has become such a big thing? Um, fine, maybe yeah, maybe five to ten percent of people um, think, oh, is that a cover? And also, most journalists have to ask that question, you know, just be balanced. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um. And uh, what have you thought about the attention that your story has drawn uh, from the mainstream and from the esoteric circles? Uh, uh, like, what have you thought about how this story sort of exploded in the past year, especially? Uh, how, what's, what's your perspective on being the, on, on the inside of, of this 15 minutes of fame? Um, I think it's interesting seeing the inner mechanisms of government. Um, the fact that I could easily uh, be prosecuted in my own country, and yet when I asked um, someone from prosecution service why it was handed over uh, to the Bush administration, um, they said this came from way over my head. It came from very high up. So whether that means someone higher up the Crown Prosecution Service or someone higher up than the Crown Prosecution Service, uh, I'm not sure. And uh, it also gives you an eye for the injustices of uh, other people that are having happened to them as well. Yeah. You know, I've stuck my name on uh, a few um, petitions since then too, so. And uh, the great unfairness of the law at the moment in your country and in mine, um, we're all experiencing a you know, sweeping loss of civil liberties um, under the guise of freedom and choice in, in, in some cases as well. And, yeah. And uh, it's made me a lot, a lot more aware of all that. And... Well, what, like, what have you thought about, uh, it's, uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say celebrityhood, but what, what, what have you thought about this sort of, like, newfound celebrity that you have, uh, within the esoteric community, especially, within ufology, and, uh, and I'm sure in the UK, because I, like I said, I used to live there for about four or five months in, in the year 2000, and I really enjoyed their papers, and their, they have an extensive media, and it's very, this is the sort of story that they would love, I'm sure, and I'm sure they're, they're all over it. But what's been your perspective on, on that celebrityhood? Well, um, I mean, nothing on the net. I haven't seen a lot of what might be going on there and discussing groups and stuff like that. Um, to me, I mean, uh, 
it's an interesting story, obviously, for the media. Um, I need to get my side of it out as well and, you know, cut away all this, you know, damaging Supernatica, um image that's been cast. Yeah. And um, also, it's just a symbiotic relationship. The media helps me also um, raise public awareness about the extradition law. Exactly. And uh, the UFO thing is kind of unfortunate. I think if I was going to choose an alibi, I would have chosen something much better than that. You know, this, this is really what I was doing. God's honest truth. Yeah. Um, yeah, it kind of... A lot of people are surprised that there hasn't been a lot more, you know, little green men jokes going on, a lot more ridicule. I think um, people, you know, the, the surprises, you know, apparently intelligent um, people, you know, sensible, hard-working person um, is going after something so crazy as UFOs and using, you know, such um, uh, alarming methods of getting it as uh, unauthorized access to government computers. But when people aren't on the inside of a particular field of endeavor, um, you don't realize the, the serious side to the subject and all, um, all the positive things that could possibly be tied to it. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, and like you said, uh, that you, you wouldn't have chosen the UFO as an alibi. Has and has you, has that sort of been pushed to the side, in a sense, by the media, where you are uh, in favor of the extradition law? Because like you said, that's a big story over in the UK, and, and there's a lot of contention over it. Has that been maybe the main crux of the coverage of your story, as opposed to the UFO thing? Yeah, a lot of them are sort of rehashes of previous interviews and previous facts. They're just uh, write-ups of the, the hearings. Um, so you do get a lot that are just, you know, chronological statements of facts. Um, and you, but you do it tend to be headlined, you know, the UFO hacker or the Pentagon hacker, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's sort of a trigger line, whatever it's called. Your first interview came out uh, in t uh, last summer, uh, with, I believe it was the John Ronson interview. Why... Well, that was 2005, and you were yeah, the whole thing started in 2002. As far as you getting arrested, why was there that uh, window of time between the arrest and your and all of a sudden now you're you're coming out? Um, I wanted to show that I wasn't one to you know go around um, you know, hooting to the press. Uh, I've been out and this. I find this American military security is crap. Blah blah blah. Um, and I wanted them to see that I was a sensible person that hadn't done any damage, didn't intend to do any damage, and regretted his actions, and, uh, you know, just wanted to be tried in his own country and definitely would never do them again. Um, so I was just being, uh, very quiet. And, and, um, what, how did, uh, it come about that the first interview with you was with John Ronson? I'm only interested in that really because he's sort of like a pretty well-known esoteric writer, and he's well-known in the UK. Um, and yeah. I'm surprised that you got someone who was knowledgeable about the subject for the first interview. Was that something that you arranged? Was that something that he went after? Or was that the newspaper's idea? Um, how did that, that first interview come about? There was uh, two friends of mine were in a place here called Woodgreen Shopping City, and uh, John Ronson was doing a book signing, and uh, they told him about my plight, and um, he they bought a book off and he, he signed it for me with a little message. And so when he when it all kicked off again, he um, contacted my solicitor and uh, made an interview request, and it was basically because of that small connection, the book and the signing and the little uh, message. And and. Um do you think you've been put not not really in the Ronson article or, or in general? Uh, do you think you've been portrayed pretty well uh, by the media for the most part? Yeah, yeah, I think it's been pretty pretty balanced, really. For some reason, it seems like in a lot of places you are uh, 
they, they call you a kid, or you're sort of classified, you're sort of characterized as a kid. I don't know if it's because of the hacking or what. Have you noticed that? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and why do you think that is, and, and what do you think about the fact that, that you're like, are you 40 now? Yeah, 40, yeah. Yeah, what, what do you think of the fact that, that people seem to think that you are like a, like a 20-year-old kid or a 17-year-old kid or something when it turns out you're actually like 40? Um, <laughs> why? I know it's really strange. Why do you think? Why do you think you're? Why, why do you think people seem to think that you're a kid? And why do you think that perception seems to like uh, keep perpetuating itself? Um, I'm really not sure. You know, I think um, maybe because I've been running around poking my nose where it doesn't belong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it is quite weird. I mean, you're right. I noticed that. I guess. And what's this kids thing going on? You know, guy, young guy, and kid. So, yeah. yeah. Now I pretty much because I was arranging this interview myself, so I know what what went down. But you can dissuade any rumors of uh, uh that there was something nefarious with with uh your that you didn't make the coast to coast AM interview. There's always people who wanna who wanna throw uh you know conspiracy theories out there, but it wasn't something <laughs> like that. It was, you know. But I wanted to make sure that we we got that on the record that there wasn't anything like that going on. It was a it was a phone situation, correct? Oh yeah, completely. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm famous for losing my phone and most other things. <laughs> um, are you like? Uh, are you particularly frustrated that you don't have uh, sort of the thing to throw at the government uh, and and the pictures? Maybe because if you had them, maybe then they would leave you alone. Would they be like, let's not mess with this guy because he's got he's got the goods on us, and we don't want to like let's, if he if you give us the pictures, we'll go away. Uh, are you frustrated that that you sort of have your hands tied on that? Yeah, if I did have anything like that, I think um, why this whole process would have been fast-tracked somewhat. Yeah. Um, and and we we established here in the interview that, that uh, you were really held back by the slow connection speed and the giant size of the pictures to uh, to get anything, and you don't have any notes or anything, or like you didn't take any handwritten notes or anything during this time, right? I did have lots of stuff in CD, but that's all with uh, O&I now, probably. Oh, okay, so then... So when they came and got you, they took all that stuff, too? Yeah, yeah. Those bastards. Uh, I know, I know. Um, and while once this story broke, uh, and maybe even up to before it, uh, had, were there any other strange occurrences that you can think of that might have happened? Um, and I'm, I'm specifically thinking of the Matthew Bevan case, because when the story broke about his arrest, he started receiving strange phone calls from foreigners and foreign languages, and I think they were Chinese, but I'm not positive. Um, and, and he sort of started had, having some strange occurrences. They moved, but the, the people found their new phone number, and they were receiving ha harassing phone calls. Have you, uh, have you experienced anything like that, harassing phone calls, strange phone calls, or uh, just random people that you're meeting? And I've only had um, two unexplained things and one case of uh, tailing. Um, the two unexplained things, the first was that my car disappeared uh, shortly after the initial arrest. And, um, you know, if it had been towed away, I'd expect to get a letter from the police or whatever, that's how it happens out here, but nothing like that ever materialised. Um, the second thing was that, um, and this was only about six months ago, I think, uh, my girlfriend and I were asleep. I'm not sure what time it was. It was dark. It felt like I was in real heavy sleep. Yeah. And um, I woke up with a really sharp pain in my heel. 
and um, I turned the lights on. And for some reason, I'd gone to bed with my socks on. I saw this blood stain through my socks. Pulled off the left sock, and uh, there were two perfectly circular puncture wounds in my left heel. Uh, one of which still had the perfectly circular flap of skin hanging off it. I haven't actually mentioned this to anyone before, but I've read it in. Um, I met Timothy Good, the British UFO author, recently. Yeah. And uh, he gave me one of his books, and it's full of stories of people with exactly the same wound, like a sort of mini, um, mini paper punch. Strange. And uh, I thought, crikey. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any abduction memories right now, that, so it's probably a rat. <laughs> <laughs> Did you take any pictures of, uh, of, the, uh, of the injury? No, no, I didn't think anything spooky at the time. I thought, what the hell was that? I just couldn't explain it at all. Yeah. And you had an incident you set up tailing? Oh, yeah, when um, I had to uh, deliver a van from London to Hastings, I think it was, and there was a, a dark blue Mercedes, five or six cars behind us at all times. And did you check it out at all, or was it just a one-time thing? Uh, we had to pull over once, and um, then I couldn't see it behind us. And then we pulled away again. The only thing that looked odd was a, a huge uh, American-type limousine uh, that pulled down. Weird. But they didn't follow us along. Um, and, and go back a little bit to your car disappearing. Tell me about that. It, it just vanished, and then you never heard anything from the police, and what did you do, call them? Uh, no, because I'd actually uh, run out of tax at the time, which is why I was really uh, worried about getting a letter. Um, so I decided because it didn't, it didn't uh, cost very much just to write it off. Oh, wow. And you, and oh, the tax man doesn't listen to this show. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't... Um, and you, like uh, you didn't mention anything about any you didn't get any weird phone calls or any contacts from like uh, strange foreigners who might have been trying to recruit you or anything like that. No, no. Okay. Um, now, what do you uh, have you heard from anybody in ufology regarding your case? Uh, you're really pretty much uh, pretty popular in ufology. You're talked about a lot on the net. Uh, I hear I hear your name mentioned quite a bit. Have you talked to any big name ufologists? Have they have they talked to you at all about your case? Um, there's been uh, lots of emails that get printed out for me, and then uh, occasionally get someone I just dictate and they type back to. Yeah. Um, I mentioned previously I met uh, Timothy Good. Uh, has been very, very helpful and very, very interesting as well. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm terrible with people's names. Um, but the, yeah, there has been a lot of interest. And there's actually there's been, I mean, Stephen Greer has um, sent emails of support, although I haven't spoken to him directly yet. Yeah. And um, there's, there is one guy who's going to kill me, so I can't remember his name. He's a British um, representative of the Disclosure Project. He's, he's been really good and given me lots of DVDs and books and stuff to. Uh, Occupy my bored mind with. <laughs> um, so there's a lot, lots of support there, definitely, and I'm very thankful for it. That's good. That's good. Has anybody in ufology uh, come out like against you that you know of, or spoken out against what you did, or said that you shouldn't have done it, or anything like that, or contacted you and been like, "Thanks a lot. You're you're bad for us," or any, anything along those lines? I think a lot of them are very level-headed and uh, in the right types of said, You know, obviously, you shouldn't have used such a method. But um, I haven't um, read of anything where anyone's uh, said anything really bad, no. That's good. Um, and have you, uh, one ufologist I wanted to ask you about, have you, have you talked to at all or heard any comment from, regarding your case, uh, from Nick Pope, who was the, uh, the British, uh, like... Oh, the MOB guy. Yeah. Has he said anything about the case at all, in the media at all? 
no, no, no communications there. And what about his successor, who is the official government? Uh, what about that position in the UK right now? Have they said anything about your case? Because they're kind of like the UFO people of uh, of the UK, and yours is a UFO case in some ways, in a lot of ways. Have have they said anything about it? Uh, not to my knowledge, no, no. Huh. You mean you mean the official uh, UFO, the MOD? Yeah, so, yeah. Have the MOD people said anything to the media over in the UK about your case? Because uh, you know, like it's a pretty big UFO case, and I figured maybe yeah. they would have gone to the the MOD for a comment. Mm, no, not to my knowledge. But um, yeah, that's quite a good uh, avenue of inquiry, actually. Um, I haven't been anything of that. Yeah, I'm surprised that they haven't. Mm. Uh, and then you mentioned you got a lot of emails from Stephen Greer. He was on uh, Coast to Coast AM uh, like two, three weeks ago, and he said that he was writing some kind of uh, some kind of legal document that was in Latin that I didn't even understand. Uh, but he said he was writing something for you. Um, have you? Uh, can you tell us anything about that? Has he mentioned that he was going to write something for you? And 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 what is the the, the extent of that? Um, yeah, that that is in the process of happening. Yeah, he is writing uh, a legal document, which I think is um, basically describing the fact that these unacknowledged special access projects are in fact unconstitutional to begin with, and that any attempt at um, opening them up uh, to the public is in the public interest. But I'm not sure. I, I think that's going to be the general wind of it, because that Latin term threw me as well. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a legal eagle, so I wouldn't know that. Me neither. Um, uh, well, let me see. Uh, these are kind of out of order now. Um, well, do you consider yourself a martyr for ufology? Because in a lot of ways you're <laughs> sort of painted that way uh, in the coverage. So do you think of yourself as a martyr for ufology? And, and what do you think of being characterized in that way? Um, I, I think that's funny. No, um, I'm, I'm curiosity killed the cat, basically. But um, no, not, not a martyr, not at all. I, I don't, uh, I don't agree with um, sort of self-aggrandizement in any shape or form. Okay, yeah, because there's a sort of uh, there's a sort of undertone to your story where people in ufology hold you up as as someone who who's like uh, taking a bullet for the for the greater good, and uh, and you're not really comfortable with that sort of characterization. No, not at all, not at all. Um, well, what, what's the timetable from here as far as your case goes? Um, uh, like you said, you were arrested in 2002. Why has it taken so long for this to play out? Obviously, you said they, they were passing this new legislation and everything. Um, what, where's, where's, this, where's this headed from here? Um, well, the Home Secretary um, has to make up his mind whether to support the extradition request. And that could happen tomorrow, or it could happen uh, 11 months down the line, as happened with the last uh, request of this, case, this kind. And, um, and then after that, the appeals process starts. And what... Assuming it doesn't go my way, the appeals process will start. Yeah. And how long, how long do you think that's going to play out? Um, I know it could be anything from six months to maybe a couple of years. It's, it's hard to say, actually. And what do you think... Uh, have, have, you, have you any idea, like, when this thing's going to be settled altogether? Like, when you're either going to exhaust your appeals or or you're going to get your side in this? Well, at the very, very outside, if it was, uh, say, it took a year for the Home Secretary to make his decision and he decided against me, uh, then you'd appeal in the um, High Courts, I think it is. Say that was another year. And then maybe the, the, the House of Lords, if it were allowed, then perhaps another year. 
Oh, okay. And maybe, then maybe the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, who knows? Yeah, so you're going to keep fighting this uh, as far as you can take it. Yeah, because it's not just me. There's 400 or so other people undergoing the same process of extradition uh, to America without any um, presentation of evidence. And uh, this 2003 Extradition Act was made to fast-track terrorist cases, and it's being used for white-collar crime. And, um, yeah, it just the, the law has to be changed, basically. We have to have prima facie evidence. And the treaty to be signed by the Senate as well as the UK government. Okay, and, and like you said, the, uh, the, you're lumped in with a group of people here, 400 people, and, and there are a lot of white-collar crimes? That's right, yeah, yeah. All right, now, if it goes down bad... And, and you end up throwing in the clink here. What what do you want to say to the folks out there now that that are either doing this sort of hacking, or uh, or maybe considering it, or think it was a good idea, or think it was worth it? Uh, would you dissuade those type of folks from doing this? Uh, absolutely. Um, do not do it if you want to practice hacking. Um, just get two machines at home, or arrange between. If I don't even arrange between you and a friend on the internet, because then your ISP will get suspicious. Just get two machines in one house. And then practice on each other. Yeah, but don't be going into government computers because they'll they'll probably end up getting you after the long run. No way, Jose. Exactly. <laughs> um, so it's sort of a cliched question, but would, was it all was it worth it? Uh, you didn't end up really with you. You sort of saw some of the stuff, but you didn't really end up uh, achieving the long term goal that you had in mind. So was all this was all this this craziness and what's going on with you and how you might end up in jail? Was it worth it? Uh, would you do it all over again, or would you totally not? Uh, I totally wouldn't do it all over again. All right, it's kind of a cliched question, but you kind of, you know, you have to ask. This, really. <laughs> um, is there anything else uh, that hasn't come out yet that you're sort of holding back on, that maybe you're waiting on, or are you throwing it all, everything you got out there? Is there anything you're sitting on right now that you're like, well, if it gets to this point, then I should probably say this. Um, or anything like that, you know, you don't have to say what it is, but is there anything you're sort of sitting on right now that that might be helpful for you in the long run? Well, as I say, to, to every time I'm asked that question, if there was, I wouldn't tell you yet. <laughs> yeah. All right. And what uh, what can people who are listening to this interview do to help you out? I know you have, uh, there's an online petition at, let me read the website here, www.freegary.org.uk. Um, that's sort of that's sort of the hub of the uh, the Gary McKinnon case. Who who who's behind that? Um, yeah, that's that's uh, someone, a friend of mine, whom um, I'd noticed uh, when I was allowed internet access for the first three years between 2002 uh, 2005. Um, who was very making very knowledgeable comments uh, on a news group. And I uh, got in contact with him. He's, he's a very knowledgeable man who does a lot of good for other people, and uh, he's, yeah, he's running the website. Well, you got, you got the website there, uh, freegary.org.uk, and uh, on there there's an online petition that people can check out and sign, hopefully. Um, right now, are you? what else can people do to help you out other than the online petition? Are you taking donations or anything? Can they send you money, and, and is it advisable maybe that they contact their U.S. representatives and, and the U.S. media? Um, yeah, not looking for money. Um, I think um, if people can find out more about the extradition law and maybe uh, write to their MPs or the politicians or their senators or whatever, because um, I think it seems to have made the Irish community uh, very angry in America as well. I think you know in relation to um, Irish politics over here in the UK. 
Um, and so, you know, it's, it's going to affect a lot of people. And uh, we shouldn't have treaties that aren't ratified. We shouldn't have treaties that are one-ended. And, yeah, that's the most important point of all this, I think. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, and what about... Uh now you, I'm pretty. I think you might have answered this, but what about uh, the listeners contacting their their congressmen and their media and everything that, that that they should tell them? Is there a specific thing that you said the Senate hasn't voted on it or something like that? Is there something that that people should call their senator and be like, "Don't uh, vote for this thing"? Is there like a specific name for that? Um, I'm 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 not sure if there's a specific name for the sort of the whole, but it's the 2003 extradition treaty, and uh, it's UK US only. And um, I mean, I I think there should be pressure on them to vote for it and to ratify it because I don't think they will ratify it, um, where you don't have to give evidence to extradite anyone. And I think if that were happening uh, on the American side, everyone would recognise it as unconstitutional and. Um, uh, fight that particular aspect of the law. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I want to thank you very much for for coming on the show, Gary. I know. Uh, thank you, sir. I know that that you don't do too many interviews, or that it's it's hard to track you down. And you're very busy, and I'm sure you want to enjoy the time you have now before things get even worse. And you don't, you know, you don't know. Every, you live every day like it's your last, I guess, at this point, right? Or your first, maybe. What's that? Or your first, maybe. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, thank, like, like I said, thank you for very much for being on the show. Is there anything you want to say uh, to close it out? Is there anything that you want, like a message that you want to get out there uh, to the people that are listening to Drive Home? Um, the truth is worth searching for, but um, I was listening to your girlfriend in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Well, Gary, thank you very much. Like I said, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, I've been watching your case for a long time, and I'm really hopeful that things work out for you. Um, I know, like you said, you're worried about it. I'm, I'm really worried about it myself. You know, it's not good. It's not good for, for Americans or UK citizens. And, and yes, you, uh, you made some mistakes here, but at the same time, you know, they were, uh, you were, you're doing it for the greater good, and, and I appreciate that. And I'm sure many people in ufology appreciate that. Um, I want to wish you the best of luck uh, with your case. Hopefully, we can keep in touch, and as further things come up, and uh, as this case develops. You can come back and let us know what's going on with the case. Um, okay. Anytime you want to, anytime you want to speak to uh, to the masses, you know, you you can contact me. You got my information. I'd be happy to have you on the show, especially if, if things if things get crazy again. You know, I'll drop you a line. We'll bring you back. We'll uh, we'll try and get the word out to as many people as possible. Um, like I said, good luck with the case. Thank you very much for appearing on the show. Um, you're the perfect guest to, to close out Banal of America Audio Season 1. I wanted to have somebody that was that really was making a serious impact in ufology, and I think you, that you've just uh, completely just made huge news, worldwide news, and uh, I appreciate the fact that you'd come on our show and talk to us and, uh, and really dig into the case like we did this last hour. So thank you very much for being okay. on the show, and good luck with your case. Well, thanks for having me, Tim, and thanks everyone for listening, and enjoy your vacation. That does it for the Banal of America Audio Season 1 season finale. I want to thank Gary McKinnon for being our special guest for this historic edition of Banal of America Audio. Gary's a very busy man. He has a lot on his plate. He has a lot to worry about, but he took the time to talk to us here at Banal of America Audio, and I really appreciate that, and I'm sure our great listeners do as well. You can find out more information about Gary and his case at the website www.freegary.org.uk. And as this is the 
Been All of America Audio Season 1, Season Finale. I want to thank all the great guests we've had over the course of the last nine months. Let me run through the names for you. I want to thank these people for taking the time to talk to us. If it wasn't for these folks, we would have no audio show. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have 32 episodes in the tank and be having this monumental season finale episode. So let's hear it for the following folks. Jim Mars, Marshall Klarfeld, Terry Hansen, Robert Miles, Greg Bishop, Peter Robbins, Grant Cameron, Adam Go-Rightly, Alfred Weber, Stanton Friedman, Melinda Leslie, Colm Kelleher, Steve Bassett, Lauren Coleman, Jerry E. Smith, Nick Redfern, Andre Eglishon, Richard Dolan, Joe Fex, Ryan Wood, James Gutman, Royce Myers, and of course Gary McKinnon here for the Banal of America Audio Season 1 Season Finale. Thank you to all the great guests from the past nine months. It's been just an amazing adventure for me. Personally, it's been a learning experience like no other. Um, and I'm really looking forward to producing the next series from Ben All of America Audio, Ben All of America Audio Season 2. While we're dishing out the big thanks, I want to thank also Leslie, Chiron, and R. Lee of BenAllofAmerica.com for your help and support with the entire audio series and BenAllofAmerica.com, the website. You guys are my support structure. You keep me going. When I fall down, they pick me up. Uh, when I'm confused, worried, elated, they're there with me throughout the process, and I appreciate that. Thank you, guys. I'm proud to have had you on board for this project. And, of course, I want to thank all of the great Banal of America audio listeners. Um, I never thought this audio series would ever get to be this big. Uh, it started out as a fun little lark, and it's become just an amazing vehicle for esoteric researchers, and I'm just tremendously proud of what this audio series has become, and I owe that to the listeners. It's you guys who send me the emails, who post links in your blogs, who tell your friends, who post stuff about it in the forums, who click the PayPal button and give me some cash to help pay for the costs. I want to thank you guys. You are the listening public. You are what makes this show happen, so thank you. Um, from the bottom of my heart, I will truly miss talking to you every week here and bringing you these interviews week in and week out for the last nine months. I'm really going to miss uh, the experience, and I'm really looking forward to when I make my return in September with Banal of America Audio Season 2. If you are one of those longtime listeners of Banal of America Audio and you've enjoyed the series as a whole, and you want to help us out, and you want to grease the wheels for Banal of America Audio Season 2 to get rolling, click the PayPal button at banalofamerica.com. Make a donation. Now's the perfect time to do it. Season 1 has concluded, and it would certainly help towards getting Season 2 up and running in a timely fashion. What is on the agenda next for Banal of America Audio? I'm glad you asked. This summer, expect possibly one or two Banal of America Audio special session interviews and probably maybe two or three Banal of America Audio best of editions that we'll post at some point throughout the summer. And then around mid-August, you can expect to start hearing the rumblings, the rumors, the teases, and the hype for Banal of America Audio Season 2. I've already been hard at work setting up who's going to be on the show, making the necessary contacts, 
doing the research, reading the books, listening to their previous interviews. And then we're looking at late September for the season premiere of the All of America Audio Season 2. I already have the list of guests lined up. I'm already working on getting it all secured and taped throughout the summer. So at some point you can expect an announcement at banalofamerica.com. Stay tuned to banalofamerica.com, folks. Just because we're not putting out weekly audio sessions does not mean that we do not put out top-notch esoteric material. We update daily, sometimes twice daily. We'll have a full slate of features, fun, weekly columns, and all kinds of stuff at banalofamerica.com. That's B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. And with that, I'm Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing off.